Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane. Marijuana, things are happening. That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to, you know, just relax all day and be floaty? And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's... It's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meet and 3 drops. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces for grocery stores last year, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. So in my effort to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me, from production gurus to PR and social media mavens. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand, because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Alex Ingalls, founder of Pilot Kombucha, a three and a half year old company that is thriving in the competitive and rapidly growing world of functional beverages. I've been waiting to talk to Alex since the day I tasted Pilot, because honestly, it's the only kombucha I've ever liked. And also um, because I think it's branded really perfectly, and I think it's poised for great things. So welcome, Alex. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, So usually we're going to spend some time talking about sort of how you got into what you got into and hear a little bit about your life story, et cetera. But before any of that happens, can you just please tell me what a SCOBY is? Uh, SCOBY is the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So that's the, it's going to sound really gross, but the bacterial mat that you put into kombucha to kickstart the fermentation. And is that like the mother when you're making sourdough? Exactly. And does it get passed down from like generation to generation? Yep. And it, it grows and expands. So it's in sourdough, it's different because you're reusing it, reusing it. Um, and it doesn't propagate. You have to feed it and that's what propagates it. Yeah. SCOBY will just sort of grow given the right conditions. So did, is your, is pilot from, some scoby that was given to you by some old man in a cave (laughs) three and a half years ago um no i actually grew my own because i have just always been extremely thrifty i looked it up on the internet when i started to brew kombucha and and decided to you know why would i buy something if i could make it myself okay customers don't listen to me by pilot exactly exactly um okay so back to the funny thing about 
I feel like this show is, I'm always like, so when you were five, did you know you wanted to be a branding <laughs> consultant? Like, yes, did I you knew know that I was right. going to start a pilot kombucha <laughs> company when I was five years old. Right. Yes. Uh-huh. So that's always been your life dream. Yes. Yeah. So what did you really <laughs> like? What, what were you, what I, were you into? You know, it's interesting. I'm part of a vis, this Vistage group that's like for small business owners. It teaches leadership skills. And we did an exercise that asked that question mm-hmm. and sort of has you look for ties to what you're doing now. So I always wanted to be a teacher. Me too. Really all the way through grad school. Well, so it makes sense for you because yeah. you started Haven's yes. Kitchen, which was a cooking school yeah, first. And so like sense. for me, I got to grad school and was like, oh, my God, academia is just red tape right. and, and her and public speaking and all the things I, that all the things people love right. and I you know I got my master's degree and was like well I guess I'm just gonna go work in food again because that's what I had done in in undergrad so just to pay rent and help yeah just that, like, to pay rent and and I think after about two years of you know, I was doing a baking blog because that's what everybody did in the early <laughs> 2000s. And I knew that I wanted to do some sort of food company. So w- when I was like 22 or 23, but took, you know, yeah, five or six years to figure out what right. it would be. So when you, so were you always a food lover? Like, were you one of those people that, you know, I feel like we can almost see each other across a room like yeah. food people, you know, like yeah. there's some people that go to foreign cities and they're like, Oh, I went to this museum and I saw that amazing building. And I'm like, I really no, what did you don't eat? care. <laughs> like all I want to know is what'd you eat? You know, were yes. you a food person? Um, Do you come yeah. from a food family? Basically, um, not from a food family, but basically until like right when I was a baby and up till now, I'll just like eat until I'm sick if I'm given the opportunity. <laughs> Great. So <laughs> yeah, it's really healthy. Um, but when yeah, choice, I right. got into cooking at a very young age. I basically told my parents that you know I don't want to do dishes anymore, and my dad was like, okay, well if you don't want to do dishes, you can cook dinner because you still have to do chores. Right. Um, and it was actually my dad and my grandfather that taught me how to cook. My grandfather was really the cook in the family. My mom's not a cook. Right. Still, mine neither. <laughs> That's cool. And then, so you, what was your first job in food? Um, I worked at Subway as a sandwich artist. They call them sandwich artists? Oh, yes. Yeah. Is that? I yeah, think. I'm not joking. Right. Yeah. Did you feel, <laughs> did you, did you have any creative license at Subway or? Was, no. Yeah. No. It was like pretty yeah. by the book. It right? was very by the book. It was a campus job. So right. I was at the Subway on but campus. it must and have not been that bad since you... No, it wasn't that bad at all. And from Subway, I graduated to a local deli. Great. So yeah, I made great strides in that <laughs> arena. And, and then, then did you get to be like, I'm going to just <laughs> put a little extra vinaigrette on this or it was... Oh, uh, no, yeah. no. I didn't really have any sort of creative food job until maybe I was... 23 or 24 I was working at Saucy by Nature which was doing falafels at Smorgasburg. Oh cool. And they had a variety of sauces and things and they did specials every month so three different kinds of falafels and they were like, "Hey, right. come up with a falafel menu." It was really just creative right. at home more okay. more than professionally. Okay. And then how did you end up getting into kombucha? I was working at Whole Foods and drinking heavily as you do in your 20s after a rough breakup. Uh-huh. <laughs> and somebody recommended kombucha as a hangover cure. 
Interesting. And it worked so well. Yeah, it's really high in B vitamins. Mm -hmm. Um, It worked so well. I bought another one the next day and another one the next day. And, uh, you know, by the end of the week, I was like, okay, like I can make this this better. Yeah. So like, let's Google search and started brewing it myself. And as I got into the brewing and drinking it more daily, I also found that there was some really great benefits um, to my digestive system. I've always struggled with issues because I had my gallbladder taken out at I think I was 19. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty young for that surgery. And the doctors had at the time basically said like, well, you're always going to have this issue unless you change your diet completely. Really watch your diet or we can put you on medication. You'll be on the medication for the rest of your life. And I was just like, neither of those are great options. I'll just just drink kombucha. I'll just deal with these issues. And then, yeah. And then kombucha basically fixed the issue completely for me. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So... I mean, I would, I, uh, I tried making jam once, so I'm very comfortable with like cooking. What I'm really uncomfortable with is anything that seems scientific in any way. So if anything can like explode or cause death, <laughs> I'm nervous about it. So not to say that, you know, you could cause death, but. Oh my God. But the bottles can explode. I've had yeah, a like homebrew bottle like explode stuff, once and no? it was at like three o'clock in the morning and yeah, it sounds How did you terrifying. figure out how like okay googling you just googled and it was just trial and effort were you ever yes i tell everybody that if you want to start a business just start googling Um, it's kind of better than an mba honestly it's true i mean that's it's interesting that you say that because it actually leads into some of my questions about the category right because now that everyone can pretty much make a pretty label and google how to make anything yes they're very low barriers to entry in a lot of these different, especially food. And I mean, I, I won't mention her name, but I know a young woman who's basically taking essential oils from like random places on the internet. She's young. She's not like our age or my age or your age. She's young, but she's like bottling them in these little things and putting on a cute label and selling them to her friends on Instagram for like money. I mean, she's making money. So my point is, is that it's not that hard to start anything. I think what's hard is to scale it. But yeah, build it. Yeah, and, and like have it be like, have it continue to function in the world. Yes. Um, and I think what people starting businesses don't always think about is like, which I certainly didn't because I just wanted to like make Haven's Kitchen. And then about a year or two in when I realized, okay, I had made it. Like it was functioning, it was sustainable. Now what? I was sort of freaked out. Like now I have to now I have to run this business for <laughs> like how long? How I don't long know. Like how this? long do yeah. I do this for? And how are people going to keep staying here? And all those questions. Um, okay, so you were working at Whole Foods. You started making this at your home. You had one flavor, you had a few flavors, you were playing around. Oh, I was playing around like crazy when I started brewing kombucha because the whole reason I stopped buying it at the store was because they didn't have like the flavor combinations that I really wanted to try. You know, with tea, there's, I mean, a world of variety, even if you're just looking at black tea, let alone green tea, white tea, matcha, um, you know, teas that are native to to the americas it's really just insane and then you add 
you know, botanicals, seeds, yeah. herbs, all these other things that at the time kombucha breweries, the bigger companies weren't really using, which is, you know, at the time is GT's was the only company right. out there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was using teas that I liked to drink, herbs that I liked to cook with right. and and supplement my healthcare regimen with. Uh, yeah, th- that was just all it was all over the place. And then. Did you start putting it in a bottle and giving it to people? Like, how did you, how did you Mm, go from like, what? Not really. No. I mean, I would, I was brewing really small batches. So a gallon at a time. And if I got a little bit backed up, then I would like bless my coworkers with a bottle of homemade kombucha for them to share. And yeah, eventually it was a chef that I was working under that grew up hating kombucha. Her, her mom. Right lived on a commune uh-huh. um <laughs> it like represented everything represented right. everything she hated it yeah. was a continuous brew so like very acidic and her mom made her drink a half a cup a day uh, for her immune system yeah. so she you know always made fun of me for making right. my own kombucha and eventually i was like just try it like it's not gonna kill you right and, and she yours, tried it and i mean i don't know how it. much is it's evolved but like i not think much. it's no really not that vinegary yeah like ah like oh I don't know you know yeah it's it's gentle I like to use beer terminology so I mm-hmm. call it like crushable and it's got a really great hydrating mouth feel which yes. a lot of kombucha companies can end up coming out a little bit dry right um which to me defeats the unless it's wine like I don't want to drink a dry beverage because I'm thirsty right <laughs> <laughs> yes that seems to defeat the purpose okay so now I want to get to when you made your first sale of it like you remember it um i do it was actually here at roberta's no way yeah yeah do they know that um i'm sure somebody somewhere knows yeah so my brother was working in in uh don't remember the department at the time he was making pizza here right and they had just opened the takeout right and they were looking for a kombucha company. And he said, oh, my sister makes great kombucha. You should talk to her. So the company did not even exist yet oh at my the gosh, time. That's <laughs> he amazing. was just like, yeah, my sister's going to do this thing. So I brought them a couple of bottles of homebrew, mm-hmm. just the flavors that I had on hand, which happened to be blueberry, lemongrass, and grapefruit mint. Yum. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is great. We can take, we'll take four cases. When can we get it? And I was like, cases um, of what? Right. A month. Yeah. <laughs> a month, maybe. Um, and yeah, so I like called my friend who did all the branding for me right. very quickly. And I had another friend who was running a commercial kitchen who let me rent shelf space basically and booked time and brewed my first 10 gallons of kombucha and literally walked it over here from my apartment because I didn't have a walk-in refrigerator. And that, so it has to be refrigerated it has to be refrigerated, and that's because it will continue to ferment and get more alcoholic correct yeah and then it turns into like an alcoholic beverage it'll and turn so into an issue. alcoholic beverage the biggest issue really is safety so the pressure can build up in the bottles um right and they can so it's not so much like bombs what you can yeah, yeah that would be that would be bad yes On that note, we're going to take a little (laughs) break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk category and building the brand and growth since day one here at Roberta's. Sounds good. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Just for me, girl. Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. 
Oh, won't you save it, baby, won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I want you to save it, baby. Hi there, I'm Allie Kane. I'm back um, with my guest Alex Ingalls, founder of Pilot Kombucha. And um, I we we left when you were selling your first couple of cases. You had a friend design a label. I know it couldn't have been that easy. <laughs> um, but then what happened? I mean, because I feel like you're everywhere. And yeah. I feel like the last thing I read was an interview where you were having a problem keeping up with demand, um, which I do want to talk about a little bit because, and I'll, you know, I'll just give my experience, (laughs) which I tend to do, but um, (laughs) we had our first PO and it was kind of perfect because like we produced exactly the same amount as the purchase order came in for. And it was like lovely, lovely, lovely. And then a day and a half later we got another PO. And we were not, we thought it was coming in like at least two weeks. Like we had no idea that that was going to happen. And I remember speaking to one of my advisors and just sort of like being freaked out. And it was a good thing. And I knew it was like a good problem to have. But people say it's a great problem to have. And yet it yeah, feels that's really my terrifying. Least favorite phrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he said, you know, every <coughs> growing company has the day where they, those two things are not aligned. What you can make and what you need to make aren't aligned. And what you need to do is you need to have a plan to mitigate for when you make too much. And then you need to have a separate plan for what happens when you can't make enough. And every founder makes the decision, do I want to, do I want to make too much and never be out of stock? Or is it more expensive you know, and harder. And should I just try to like stick to my plan a little bit mm-hmm. and not make enough and, and face some out of stocks, but sort of try to fix those relationships. Consumers are okay when they feel a little bit like they can't get something that they want. The problem for us has been the buyers empty at the stores, space, yeah. empty shelves, um, a just keeping them, from being mean to you (laughs) B making sure no one moves into your space. Um, but where are you now with your supply and your demand? Um, well, so we actually just doubled production. So we're at a really happy space. Yeah. And we're already planning on when we can double again. So, so right now we actually do have some inventory before our next fill date, which is actually today is packing day. Right. Um, and how did you get from, 
you know, like, cause people who are listening, like, this is what they want to know. Like what happened when, I mean, when did you realize you needed to increase your production and how did oh, you go about times. doing it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so the, the first order that we brewed, the Roberta's order, um, you know, I made five gallons of each flavor and so I had two cases of each flavor left over and it was like, okay, well, I guess I have to find two more customers to take these cases. Right. And I'm really getting nitty gritty. You yeah. would like, you, you bought the bottles. Bought like, the bottles. Yeah. Right. I, I think the first time I bought them, I got them I, somewhere bad, like Uline or something. Right. I just didn't know any no. better. How would we know? Um, yeah. And, and I went out and got two more customers and then I was out for two weeks. Right. Um, so I, booked more shelf space. I grew out of that space. And do you, I mean, do you have, like a you have a distributor? Yes. I have, I have three distributors right now. Yeah. Okay. So that didn't come until very recently though. You were like, we were a, doing self distribution. Yeah. Right. So the first year of business, I was doing everything myself. I was brewing, labeling bottles, sealing the bottles, doing all the deliveries, all the sales calls, the invoicing, the social media, whatever uh, it was right. when I first started. She which just did air crap. quotes I mean, around social media. Yeah, right. we, we didn't even have a website until like three to six months into the business. Right. Um, well, because you had a product. I mean, you had, yeah, you I, know, had a, I had a product right. and I was making sales and I was like, who yeah. needs a website? Right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting. There's this really... There's so many people out there with just like bullshit on a stick and really beautiful. Do you want to quote that? Really beautiful (laughs) like colors and branding and like very cool sort of like Instagram that's like very evocative. And yet you're sort of like, but your product isn't great. Like what's your product, you know? And yeah. And I think, I think from the get go, we had great design, great product and almost the, just the bottle sitting on the shelf gave this appearance of we were much, much bigger than yep. we actually were. Yes. People would then go to the Instagram and be like, oh. Right. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, it's great. Uh, do you, so the friend that designed the label, mm-hmm. did, she, did she do the website and everything too? Um, and it's a he, he, and no, he did not do the website, which actually needs quite a bit of work. We're, we're working on that right, right. now. Um, no, he just did the bottles. He did the stickers. Right. How'd you come up like with the name Pilot? House. Uh, we have a strong history of aviation in my family. So my dad, my granddad, my great uncle, and I think their father Wow. Basically, since since there was a flying part of the military, right. someone on my dad's side of the family has been a pilot. That's so, very cool. Until and so my generation. Are, right. So me and my brothers were the first to not go into that. Okay. And the flags on the... The flags like, based on, yeah, Navy Navy right. flag. I don't remember. Semaphore right. coding. Yeah. Um, yeah like so Alpha Romeo. My, my dad yeah. was in the Navy, so... Right. Yeah, it comes back down to that. And then our little stickers that I think I've given you a couple of, those are based on squadron patch designs. Very cool. Yeah, so it all ties back into the military history. We're pro-vet but anti-war. Right, love it. So I jumped and got into... So supply. So you started off and you were gathering your customers and did you have a hard time selling into stores at all? Were they... No. (laughs) Right. I mean, it, it's, and stores it's the more craziest than cafes thing. Or? Um, a little bit of both. Yeah, we did a lot of cafes, a lot of specialty grocery stores. So, like, I really started off with, like, the places that I really liked to shop, like Campbell's Cheese, Bedford Cheese. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Foster Sundry is one of my best customers. Um, Fleischer's Butcher Shop. Right. So like places that I really liked to shop right. that I thought that, you know, my fellow customers at those places would probably enjoy what I was making. Right. Um, but when when I started Kombucha Brooklyn, which was the big company, when I started drinking kombucha, they had just won the like rebranding contest and they were really big. But then kombucha had that big alcohol scare. So they got out of production. Right. And really just left this gaping hole mm-hmm. in, in the Brooklyn. market. Yeah. For for a bottled kombucha product um, that was made locally. So they were still doing kegs, but they didn't have any bottles on the shelves and that made it extremely easy for us to step in. So let's talk a little bit about alcohol and sugar. Um, (coughs) Because from what I understand, and I've done like a little bit of research, from what I understand, the big issue is that when you stick your nutritional label on it, the alcohol content and the sugar content are one thing. Yeah. But... Or they vary. They vary. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a living product. So you can test it at every stage of, of, of its life, of its shelf life, which we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we send out to Cornell Wine Lab to do right. all our testing. And we test at fresh. We test at three months. And then we test again at six months, which is one month past our actual approved shelf life. To measure A for like to microbes, measure for, but also... For alcohol. No, right. we don't actually have to do microbe testing. So kombucha it's... has no known pathogens. So it's really just alcohol and right. residual sugar. That's and because awesome. it's living, I mean, it can change from batch to batch it can change you know from one day to the right. next let alone and I mean if someone month. doesn't necessarily like if it's out for a few hours and it's not constantly in the fridge it can grow a little more maybe or is that yeah I mean a couple hours it depends on how hot it is right yeah if it's like 90 degrees and you're sitting out in the sun then yes absolutely right. it might grow so what's the so what's the scare like the scare is that it gets too the alcoholic. The scare is that it becomes too alcoholic. Yeah. So so if if it gets past 0.5% and I really think this is more safety driven than anything else. So mm-hmm. like you have, you know, people in certain religions who don't drink alcohol, you have right. people who are in recovery who maybe drink kombucha but aren't aware of the alcohol content. Right. Kids. Kids, yeah, right. kids, pregnant women, um so so if the alcohol content goes above 0.5 for the consumer, it's it can be scary. But as a business owner, we're worried about that, plus the taxing, the regulations. Right. You can get slapped with a really big fine if you're selling an alcoholic product as a non-alcoholic Got product. It. And does the sugar content also go up over time? No, if anything, it would go down. Okay. Yeah, because it's, it's very, being converted into alcohol yeah. as it ages. Like, there's no... It's like there's n- not much sugar and it's really low calorie and it tastes yeah, it's really a, delicious. Yeah, low glycemic index beverage. Right. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so you figured out that you need to produce more. You were brewing. You first were in your own kitchen. Then you went to someone's production kitchen. And then where'd you go from there? From there, we moved in with She Wolf Bakery. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So the first year we were in, it's like semi-private space. So we had our own little room, but we used their sinks. Was it their still just you? loading dock, their walk-in. It was still just so me. The royal we. Yeah. Yeah. The royal we. <laughs> um, we, 
hired, I hired right. <laughs> a delivery driver on my 29th birthday. I Amazing. made a joke that it was like my birthday gift to myself and that I was at that point a little bit under a year in business right. and I totally poached him from a former employer. <laughs> and he Just bad form, but a refrigerated I, I think it worked van, out. Presumably. Um, well, we were renting. Right. Yeah. Um, but actually, for for the first year and a half, I think we were delivering out of my Honda Element. Got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, we actually didn't do refrigerated delivery until about a year ago. Right. And then, I mean, the renting logistics are just a nightmare here no, in New York. No, I mean, York. keeping it cold is... It's it, critical. I mean, it's, yeah, it's critical. It's we have also just the biggest issues. big pain in the yeah. neck. I mean, it's it's... The number one thing people yeah. said, don't do fresh refrigerated sauces because cold chain, you know, yeah. distribution is a pain. And then you get into, you know, who can distribute it for you and they need to be refrigerated. Yeah. Right. And then. Yeah. You, you and know. New York, you know, refrigerated space is at a very high yeah. premium. Yeah. So, um, Let's talk about the segments a little bit. I want to talk about the category because I don't think that I certainly, when I started a sauce company did not, I mean, I eventually did, but I didn't look at like the categories of supermarket buying and decide there's a white space in the, you know, in the sauce market. But now that I know that there is, and I, now I can speak to it, you know, and I will say like when I'm talking to, sort of future entrepreneurs or, you know, students at ICE or whatever it is, you know, try not to go into a really crowded category. Um, but you didn't go into a crowded category. You just no, kind of got started, into a category that started yeah. growing really fast. Yeah. And that's kind of my question. So presumably ours is going to be the same thing, right? I mean, fresh sauce is not my own idea. People are figuring out how to do it and how to build it. I guess the question for you is, are you thinking, you know, what are the goals a little bit? Is the goal eventually to sell to one of the big sort of strategic, you know, companies? Do you want to be a national brand? Are you, you know, are you kind of hoping that you own New York and then that's, that's the goal or, you know, like. Because I feel like there are two that are sort of the big mamas. Yeah. There's Health Aid and GT. You know, it's yeah. funny. Health Aid actually isn't even the number two it selling. It just feels like it. it. Just, yeah, they're just here in New York. They came out here before the other big dogs. Um, <clears throat> so it's actually Kavita. GT's, not even Kavita. No. Well, GT's Kavita. I don't count Kavita because it's not real kombucha. Okay. Um, GT's Hum Kombucha, mm -hmm. Brew Doctor, and then Health Aid is number four. Got it. And those are yeah. all nationally distributed. Those are all nationally distributed, yeah. And Hum even has some international distribution. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So is that the goal? Uh, no, I actually think you really have to alter the product to a level that I think loses some of the health benefits, some of the the like homebrew feel that I feel like our kombucha has. So no, I, I would be totally happy with staying a regional independent owned right. kombucha company and really cornering the Northeast market and, and having a home base here in Brooklyn. Right. I mean, that's, a, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are all these different founders with all these different plans. And the truth is you can have a really, you don't have to go all the way, you know, 
big you and don't, sell especially to Especially here Pepsi, in New York, you know? the market's so big right. that you could really, I mean, Run thrive a and grow and and make see millions yep. in, in net sales and yeah. not even leave New York. And doing it that way also maybe means that you don't have to take in a lot of money, right? I mean, yeah. because if you're growing organically and you're growing in your home base, I think the reason why a lot of brands feel that they need a lot of outside money is to build awareness in areas that aren't their home base, you know? But if you're kind of growing it from like Brooklyn out, out, yeah, um, then you don't necessarily need to bring in all of this money. Do you want to talk yeah. about money? Um, sure. There's not much to talk about really for us. We haven't taken outside funding. It's right. been all friends and family, um, and all women, friends and family, except for my younger brother who gave us a thousand dollars the first year we started. Just, um, because he's a good guy. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, is it going to start paying for itself or does it yeah, pay it, for itself? It pays for itself. Yeah, actually. So just I mean, that's, basically from no the one first year, that. it started paying for itself. Right. Um, we've been very bootstrapped. We started with $8,000. Wow. Um, yeah. And then the, the first loan we took out was when I realized I was getting kicked out of my She-Wolf shared space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed to buy a walk-in. I needed a warehouse space. Right. We needed to rent U-Hauls to right. move everything. The lab testing, um, too, is expensive. I mean, actually, for us it is. No? Maybe because we have more pathogens I mean, when for. you add into more SKUs, yeah, I mean, it depends on how many tests you do. We're really only testing for ABV and residual sugars. Right. So that's, you know, I don't know, 100 20 bucks per right. bottle. Oh, my gosh. Mine's like, I guess because it's HPP, mine's like 7000 per SKU. That's insane. Yeah. Through Cornell? Uh-huh. Wow. But, I mean, they need to do, like, a whole validation. All the plate testing yeah. and stuff, it's, yeah. Yeah. They challenge it. They, like, put microbes in it <laughs> to see if they'll grow. Oh, wow. And then they, yeah, it's kind of crazy how, how it goes. Yeah. When, when we first started, I was like, oh, my God, alcohol testing is how much? <laughs> right. $120? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I should have gone into something else, probably. Yeah. <laughs> But it's it's working out okay. So that's the plan. And then um, do you have a limit on how many uh, flavors eventually you want to have? Or are you just going to keep coming up? Oh, my up God, like- no. <laughs> um, so we're using a co-packer now. And he's always joking with me, like, stop making new flavors. Because right. so, we have 10. Right. Let's back up. Yeah. So you were still producing it. You were making it. You were bottling it. Yes. You presumably hired somebody to help you to do the deliveries but i was still doing all the production and is there any sort of he came and helped out like once or twice to bottle he hated it is there is there like other than putting on is there a because there's a seal it's like a sealed bottle is there or yeah so you have to screw caps on and then there's the the plastic tamper seal right so then you have to i mean individually slip those little pieces of plastic off off itself and onto the bottle and then blast it with a heat gun yeah okay um so yeah i was using a little embossing heat gun from michael's right (laughs) um (laughs) when did you move to a co-packer i moved to a co-packer when we got the news that we were losing the space in greenpoint got it yeah so they gave me 60 days to vacate um that was up from 30 right um i basically went to them i was like this is not enough time that's gonna put my business under right um and I had a friend from working another job at the farmer's markets who had a soda syrup company 
And we had just kept in touch on Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram. And he just randomly sent me a message like, hey, like I have all this staff and kitchen space and time. I'm thinking about getting into co-packing. So if that's something that you would ever be interested in talking about, like, let me know. And it just, I mean, it was two days after I got the notice from She-Wolf. Right. So it was just the exact right time. And I was like, okay, like, I don't know how long I want to do this, but like, let's have the conversation. Right. Um, and I was thinking really it would be a stopgap measure. But honestly, as soon as I got out of that backbreaking yeah. production work. No, I mean, you know, people have different, you know, different theories on you know, whether you want to own your own production or you want to outsource it at the end of the day, like they don't mean like you physically making every batch, every every single bottle. I know it's my favorite question at the farmer's market. Oh, are you making this yourself? Like, well, yeah, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) So did you have to like bring Um, your scoby? Yes. How big is it? Packed up. I mean, at that point we were brewing in five, five gallon glass jars. So it's about like a foot and a half in diameter. So I, packed up all my glass jars full of scoby and How starter culture and drove it up to him that would be a question for jason i have at my house <laughs> three how many shelby like, like three. three or four gallon jars just filled with scoby and that's not even the stuff that's actually fermenting right now that's just sitting <laughs> and growing wow. um and then i know they have up at the kitchen at least one 50 gallon barrel that's just filled with scobies and starter wow what's the and difference not between scobies counting. and starter the starter's the actual liquid that right. it sits in i have a question just for my own personal self is it high is it a lot of caffeine uh, no, it's funny. We were actually just talking about posting this um, on our Instagram and website. Uh, we've been getting that question a lot lately. So tea, as you know, varies in caffeine content with black tea being the highest, white tea being close to nothing. Um, most of the caffeine actually, they say ferments out, but it's actually the culture eats nitrogen that the caffeine gives off so the caffeine degrades as it ferments and so depending on the the tea blend and ours has a different tea for every kombucha it it can have as little as two or as much as like 20 milligrams and for reference a cup of coffee is 95 milligrams of caffeine got it okay yeah so 20 would be like if i made a matcha kombucha right that would be a lot of caffeine for kombucha right now, in terms of, so again, going back to sort of our experience, we have a couple of things that we have on our radar in terms of competition. We know that there are going to be other brands that are going to be doing similar things. We also know that supermarkets are going to be doing a lot of private label. So, you know, they're going to have their own version of chimichurri or their own version of, you know, nutty lemongrass or whatever it is. And a lot of them have actually asked us to make them for them which we, you know, every company has this choice at some point to make, and it's not clear cut. You know, are we building the brand and are we trying to like get the brand out there or do we do some of this private label stuff to just build volume, you know, and sales and get the money, but it can't be the exact same thing as the branded product which means that we need to put resources into like developing that for them. I'm assuming places have come to you and asked you to do private label. Yeah. From very early on, people asked us to do private label. I actually just got a message today at some cafe 
asked us to do a private label kombucha for them. And what are your thoughts on, you know, because there's a difference between like a co-brand, like let's do a fun collaboration, you know, but a private label means that you are not focused on pilot Mm -hmm. and you're just selling something which can be good for the bottom line and certainly keeps your co-packer producing, which is good. Um, But what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are that my co-packer doesn't have a problem with producing right now. We're basically taking up almost his entire weekly schedule, to be honest. And I'm still fighting for more. more. I need more. Um, so, you know, if, if we had time and space, I would be happy to do that. I think it's a win-win for everybody. I don't necessarily have to have my name on the bottle. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I could get my favorite celery and we could just call it Haven's Kitchen and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really love what's this it's celery, celery juniper. juniper. Yeah, it's my favorite too. It's funny because the other two sold out immediately in this one. Like I there know. were like two left and I'm like, well, people, you're missing and the I, best And one. I think I told you that when we did mm-hmm. the tasting, um, it's, it's a polarizing flavor and people either love it or they think it's too weird to buy. Right. And I don't think I've ever had anybody taste it and be like, oh, that's gross. No, right. no um, but best. you really have to try it before you buy it. So do you have any, are you worried about competition at all? Who freaks course, you out? Of course, who isn't? <laughs> I mean, who, like what scares you? Like who scares um, you? The big ones or the little no, ones? No, it's not the big ones. It's always the little ones. Um, There's, you know, the people who maybe are doing it as a lark and not really focusing on actually building and scaling a business who I feel like are just eating up your market share and your shelf space. By the way, that happens in every... Just get out of my way. (laughs) It's funny. It happens. We, we, I mean, it's totally random, but like we were talking about this with events at Havens the other day because someone, you know, asked us to do something for free. And we're like, you know, we're six years old. It's you think that, you know, no offense, but like your hashtag or like tagging us is not going to actually be the amazing marketing push that you think Think it's going to be. And it also doesn't pay the rent. But what we've gotten to is like there's always someone new who's willing to give it away for free, whether it's kombucha or their time or you know, and the problem with that is that it really drags down everybody because then, you know, they're not building towards something bigger, but they're also taking market share away from those of us that are. So I feel like everyone should just start charging, you know, for their time, even if it's, you know, for yeah, everything. I mean, you can almost get into it as a gendered thing as well. Tell me how. Um, how is it gendered? Well, I mean, men get more funding for one, so their companies are more likely to be giving away free product. I see what you're saying. Women undervalue their labor and their work and their efforts. Um, That's why I had to open Haven's Kitchen, because I was doing it at home, and I felt like I didn't have enough cred. It's also why I went back to get a master's degree, because I I felt like, who's going to take me seriously, and why would anyone pay me money? If I don't have some some outsource like outside source validating me, I see what you mean about the gender. So you're worried more about like the small sort of like, you know, I hate the word artisan, but like the not you're not worried yeah, about the. Yeah, I mean, the big. not even like yeah. I mean, it's it's always going to be a smaller, up and coming, yeah. more scrappy, right company who maybe doesn't know how the food business works, and you know we've we've gotten a lot of flack and 
trash talking about us because we're using a co-packer so like really yeah and it's it's you know it's a very (laughs) macho thing where people think they have to sweat and toil and do everything themselves but but really like using a co-packer has allowed us to grow and scale and have me focus on the bigger picture for the business it's been I think Honestly, that paradigm is shifting. I really do. I think the paradigm of the founder who's like sleeping on the couch and blah, you know, like I, I think. I think that's you know, also a women led movement. A hundred. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. We don't have, we, first of all, I mean, I have five kids. Like I'm not sleeping on the factory floor. Yeah. Right. My yeah. kids would not allow that. Yeah. But, you know, I think secondly, like we, you know, I do think that we don't, and it's funny because on one hand we do have stuff to prove on the other. We, you know, we don't have to prove that we've killed ourselves to feel like we've done something. Well, we already good. know we're doing everything. Exactly. So. We don't have anything to <laughs> prove. Um, so in terms of that competition and in terms of the threats, are you sort of actively always thinking about how to stay ahead of it? Are you thinking oh. about like, no how you're positioning yourself against I mean I'm always thinking about how I'm positioning myself but honestly I've found that for me and for my mental health it's always a little bit better if I just compartmentalize it like I you know I you can get into with Instagram and everything get into these really yeah deep downward spirals and and thinking about how to like stay on the cutting edge it's never really it just stresses me out so I just you know I'll I'll glance at everybody's Instagram and then I'll be like okay like time to get back to work and focus on what I'm doing and what we do well and what's our next flavor gonna be that I'm really excited about or like this ingredient that somebody sent me yeah Um, yeah, yeah I think focusing on competition too much is a little bit unhealthy totally and like yeah again i think like you know focusing on staying competitive and the cutting edge is a very macho thing that i just i can't do well it's funny because they're you know we have to wrap up in a couple minutes but i do think that you know you do need to know who they are because you can't be an ostrich right on the other hand i think that you know the biggest buffer against all of it is knowing who you are Exactly. You know, That's and, exactly. And yeah. and always defining that language to yourself and who who your people are, you know. And that that lesson just keeps coming up with everybody I have here, whether it's someone who does that for a living or another founder. It always comes back to like you know people say like you're twenty percent, you're twenty percent, you know, like those core people, you know, and always thinking about them and speaking to them and and. And knowing what what you have, you know, because I think there are a lot of things that don't have that core. Unfortunately, there are a lot of brands that have the core, but they haven't put it into words yet or they haven't defined it for themselves yet. Yeah, it's and really hard. It's a hard process, yeah. but it's something that I've really dug into recently because yeah. I want I want it to be clear. You know, and in in my brain, it's clear, but it's not always clear on the outside. Yeah. So when we started branding and like really digging into like who our ideal customer was, the exercise we did was like the one single ideal customer, not the 20%, which I've never heard. And it's, I mean, I got, 
so specific and I was trying to read a lot about branding and going through this year where I was like I'm not reading any books by men which right. I still haven't done Have you in read three years thinking? by the way no but I was going to recommend Branding is Sexy oh I like um, that it was one of the only <laughs> branding books I was able to find that was by a woman well, um, also Design Thinking by Debbie Millman okay. it's I'm telling you it's awesome it's interviews with a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of men yeah. that she interviews but it's through her lens it, yeah. it's really good all right Last question. If you had to give one piece of advice to someone who's starting off to yourself three and a half years ago, what would it be? Um, gosh, that's hard. There's so many. And I really just want to say, like, you just, can give five. just do <laughs> it and don't be afraid and ask for the the price that you think is fair for the work that you're putting in because um, it looks better if you start out high rather than starting yeah. low because you feel like you have to be competitive, which, you know, you're you're small. You're one person. You're not going to be competitive. Just embrace that. <laughs> no, I think actually that's, um, that's a really good rule of thumb too. You can yeah. always lower your prices. You, you can always lower them. them. It looks really bad if you raise them. Yeah. We've, we had to do that. It was, so it was rough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I also think that going back to, you know, focusing on the competition, just don't think about them. Don't think about what they're doing. Think about what you're doing and and who your customer is. And love them. And love them and speak to them and and take care of yourself. Meditate. Yeah. Yeah. Do do that. something nice for yourself every day. Like drink kombucha. Like drink kombucha or <laughs> meditate or go to yoga class. Prioritize your mental health. Yeah. It's 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 critical as a small business owner to do that. And it's true. not talked about often, but yeah, you can go through high highs and low lows for sure. Yeah. All right. So here's to lots of high highs and not that many low lows. <laughs> uh, thank you, Alex, for coming on the show. Yeah, Matt, thank you thank for, you for engineering the show. <laughs> Ladies, thank you for videoing the show. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'll see you next time on In the Sauce. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.